welcome to a new episode of the Fish to Final Table Poker Podcast. We're back. I'm your host, Nick Oakley. Apologies for the delay getting another episode out. Unfortunately, real life has rudely interrupted my poker career and I found myself having to go back to work to earn a bit of a crust. Now, for anyone out there worrying about my financial situation, fear not, the house has not been repossessed just yet to cover poker debts, so I can still afford the kids' new shoes. Well, as long as they're massively discounted and the money comes out of the joint account. Just because I have not been recording poker podcasts, that's not to say I've not been playing poker. I've been busy playing pretty much every day, some successes, some failures, and it's safe to say I am not going to be one of these miraculous poker players who never deposits anything into their poker account because I have probably deposited about 60 to 80 pounds of my hard-earned cash. So that's the reality of the situation, but I seem to be doing all right. I'm not bleeding my chips away at a huge rate of knots. I'm sticking to pretty much the same stakes every time I play. I'm playing just cash at the minute. Would really be interested in getting into tournaments so hopefully that's just around the corner. So coming up today we've got hand history analysis from a poker professional however this week it won't be Andy Hills as unfortunately he's not available. Fear not because stepping into the breach for this episode he's a professional poker player from Dublin Ireland, also a Unibet poker ambassador, author of several poker strategy books as well as a poker blogger and co-host of the mother of all poker podcasts the chip race it's dara okani delighted to be here nick thanks for having me on oh, absolute pleasure i must admit i'm a little bit starry-eyed because you are pretty much like poker podcast royalty dara i must admit <laughs> so um yeah how did you get into into poker when did you start playing and, and what got you into it what i do now started 13 years ago um when i was 42 years old and at the time, I was an ultra runner, which means I ran distances longer than a marathon. Wow. Um, and I was pretty successful at it. Um, like I, I ran for Ireland, ran in the World Championships, won a few big races. Wow. So it was going very well. And I'd always had something competitive since I was a kid. Uh, the first thing that I remember being good at and winning tournaments in was chess. And then I had a bridge phase as well, uh, where I played at a very high level backgammon. And then I got into the running, obviously. But when I was 42, basically, I was kind of conscious of the fact that I was getting older and I wasn't going to be competitive for too much longer. So I was kind of looking around for something I might be able to do where my age wouldn't be such an issue. And I was watching TV late one night and the Irish Poker Open was on. And I was just looking at the field and you could see lots of people of all shapes and sizes and ages. And I thought, oh, that looks like something that people can do of any age. Uh, Your age doesn't seem to be an issue. Um, my brother was living with us at the time and he was actually playing poker sort of semi-professionally. So I was aware of that. So I said to him, OK, I think I'll, I think I want to try this poker thing. Can you can you teach me? So he sort of gave me the basics one afternoon. I started playing online. Yeah, I mean, I just really took to it like a duck to water. After my brother taught me the basics, I said to him, well, what should I play online? And he said, well, just play free rolls. Back in 2007, it would have been, there was literally loads of free rolls. All the sites were trying to get everybody to sign up. So they were running lots of free rolls. So I think on the second night I was playing, I played on a free roll on Ladbrokes. And there was like 6,000 runners or whatever. I didn't really know what I was doing, obviously, because I'd only had one lesson. But obviously ran really well because I ended up coming second for 150 bucks or something like that. Wow. So... Yeah, so the next day, when my brother woke up, I said, okay, I've got this 150 on the account now. What should I do with this? And he said, okay, well, play um, 
very low stakes limit cash because that way you'll, you'll lose the money really, really slowly. So I started playing limit cash. I bought, a, I think, a couple of books on it. And I mean, it's impossible to overstate how soft it was back then. I mean, literally, if you had any sort of clue, uh, you could win very easily. Like, I would say the guys who were playing $2, $4 back then were worse on average than the guys playing one cent, two cent these days. Wow. So basically, I was a winner right from the start. And I started running up a bankroll online. And I got interested in no limit. So I started playing sit and goes. And I was doing very well from them. And then started playing live a bit as well. And one of the first big tournaments I entered, this was about nine months after I learned the game in early 2008, was the European Deep Stack, which was in Drogheda. It was a 1500 buy-in at the time. So literally my first big tournament and I ended up winning it or, or technically chopping it rather than winning it. Yeah, so that was like a really good start in my life career. Mm. So at this stage, I was already doing so well online and I was working at the same time, but working from home. I worked in computers. It got to the stage where I was actually making more money from poker than I was from the, the day job. So I was already sort of thinking of maybe transitioning. I remember I went deep in a GUKPT a couple of months after my deep stack win. And that kind of made up my mind, okay, I'm going to try this now. So I phased out my work over the next year and played played more and more poker, studied more and more poker. And yeah, basically just built up my online bankroll. I mean, to this day, I boast about the fact that I never actually made an online deposit. Everything came from that initial 150 Wow. I believe the exact amount was 150, 144. It's it's firm in my mind. So that from <laughs> from that 151 dollars 44 cents that I won on ad books, basically everything has come. Incredible. And and at the ripe old age of 42, there's hope for us all yet. Then Dar is <laughs> Yeah, this is the thing. I, I I think I'm unusual. I mean, there are there are some other guys. Pierre Neubel, I know, started really late as well. And there, there there are some other cases, but for the most part, people you know, start when they're 18 or even if you start at 21, you're kind of old. So I think I'm fairly atypical for, particularly for online players. I think live players, maybe sometimes you do see guys who start later, but uh, but I've always been primarily an online player, even though I do play a good bit live. For that, yeah, my age profile is different, but I think what I did before, playing other games like chess, backgammon, bridge, that kind of prepared me for that sort of strategic mindset. I've always approached games as like, this is something which can be learned and figured out rather than just this is something which you just play for the fun of it. And I think that that's probably helped me more than anything else. What is it? What are the similarities then between chess and bridge and, and poker? Are there similarities in mindset? There are definitely similarities in mindset because in all of those games, if you let your emotions overwhelm you, um, that's an issue. You have to be able to think clearly and strategically. I think the biggest similarity between chess, let's say, chess, which is a completely different game, obviously, there's not even any cards involved. But I think the biggest similarity is that in chess, you have to get used to sitting there for a long time thinking and doing the same things over and over again. Like when you learn chess, you play the same openings. So you know the first 10 to 20 moves are standard. So you just have to get that into your head that this is what I do every time. Bridge is a bit different now because bridge does introduce a sort of psychological component where you can think about what your opponents are thinking. And obviously there's cards involved as well. So there's, there's that similarity. I would say of the three games that I played, maybe backgammon is actually the closest, though, because backgammon is a pure strategy game, but it also has a large luck element. There's no luck in bridge or chess. So in backgammon, you do have to sort of accept the idea that sometimes you're better than the other guy, you play better, you make no mistakes, and you still lose. And that's something that you don't have in those other games. And backgammon was actually the first game that I played online for money, even before poker. It used to be quite big in the early 2000s. And I remember actually signing up for a party but not to play poker, but to play gammon, backgammon, because it was they had a side site called Party Gammon. And I was doing well on that for a while, but unfortunately, uh, 
online backgammon for money ended up being killed by bots. So uh, nobody does it anymore. It's interesting what you say about emotions overwhelming us players. And I wonder whether that's where a bit of experience, a bit of age. I mean, I'm, I'm 40 and I just started playing in the summer, although I did dabble in my 20s. But now just being more secure, both in my in myself and also financially, just means I can explore the game a lot easier rather than them worrying, fretting over betting and losing money that perhaps I didn't have. That makes perfect sense to me. And one of my bugbears with the online poker industry in general is I think they market too much and too exclusively at young people interesting and i always make the point that to play poker online you need two things you need time and you need money and these are two things which a lot of young people don't really have they're trying to build their career or they're studying and they're not earning very much money yet whereas older people uh, particularly retired people have lots of time and often have lots of money or people at our stage of life who are more established we, we also have leisure time and more disposable income so i think the online industry should do more marketing to our our sort of demographic in terms of how much of a factor age is, it's definitely a factor for some people. You, you do see people mellowing with age. You see people going the other way too, though. You see people getting less and less patient and more and more frustrated. And I certainly know lots of 20-year-olds who have perfect mindset. They never tilt, they never get upset. And similarly, I know lots of guys my age who seem to get triggered by the slightest thing. Every bad beat, every time they get check-raised, every time somebody tries to steal their big blind. So I think it can go either way. Tell us about the running. Is there a link between the two? I mean, you'd think not at first glance, but I'd love to hear that there was. I think there is. I, I think there's actually a very big link, um, specifically the type of running that I did, which is the really, really long stuff, because both the races and the training that had to be done for it involved doing the same thing over and over for a very long time, which is something I keep going back to with poker, particularly online poker. If you're the type of person who's easily distracted or who doesn't like doing the same thing for a very long time, online poker is going to be very difficult for you because you do have to keep doing the same thing over and over again. So I think that's one thing I got from running, just the idea of you're just doing what you're doing. Stay in the moment, but be prepared to be in that moment for a long time. The other thing I think which came from was just natural endurance, which I actually think is a huge advantage as well. When you're playing a long session, I'm a tournament player, so I do have to commit to long sessions. And often my Sunday grind will go... 12 14 or even 16 hours by the time you get into our number 16 if you're not in good shape you're going to be making mistakes you're not going to be playing your best and this is actually the time when it's most important as a tournament player to be playing your best because you'll be deepest in, in, in whatever tournament that you're deepest in that particular session so i feel like the stamina element is a huge component too and i've also felt that live like any time i've made any of the bigger final tables i made I did feel I had an advantage over the field just because of my natural mm. endurance and fitness. I actually felt that I was slipping a few years ago. I noticed myself getting tired late in sessions. So I went back to training. I don't train quite as intensely as I did when I was as running competitively, but, but I increased my intensity, let's say. So I run six days a week now. Five of those days, I run for an hour. And on the other day, I run for four and a half hours. So I do feel that the, that the overall fitness is a big help as well. I've been letting myself go over since lockdown and, and not getting out and running. And I find that running and other things like playing music as well really help me to, to kind of focus. It's like it clears a lot of your mind. And, and I, I can imagine having a run or, d or doing something like an activity like that that really focuses you could be great prep for then sitting down and doing a long marathon session on the tables. That's a really great point, actually. And I, and I forgot to say that the, the other huge benefit I find from the training that I do is just, just mentally. When I went back to training more, um, I found my mental game improved dramatically. I was getting less upset by 
bad sessions or bad stuff that happened. I was just able to take things more in my stride. I put that down completely to the running. The runs feel kind of like a mixture of preparation and also a reset. I mentioned that I do a long run every week. I always do that on a Monday. And the reason why I, I choose Monday is essentially it's a reset for the week. You know, Sunday is my most intense day online and often it won't have gone very well. So I don't want to just go straight back into playing. So I do a long run and that feels like a total mental reset. I'm just ready to continue. On the other days when I, when I am playing, I run uh, before I play for an hour. And that's exactly like you said, that feels like the perfect preparation. It gets the oxygen going to the brain. It gets me um, sort of mentally relaxed. I listen to poker podcasts on my run. So it, it also starts me thinking about poker. Uh, it's kind of like warming the brain up before you start playing. Me and you, Dara, we're clearly at opposite ends of the poles when it comes to prep for poker, because often mine will be a couple of glasses of wine, maybe a beer whilst I'm prepping to play poker. And I'm not sure. Uh, it's like I used to play darts at university and there was always a sweet spot after about two and a half pints where you, the treble 20s would be flying in. <laughs> After that point, things went a little bit awry. I'm sensing a similar pattern in my poker playing too. So um, more running, less boozing perhaps. Yeah, I mean, the booze thing is interesting because I think a lot of people do find that on a small amount of booze, they actually play better because it relaxes them. Um, But obviously if you take it too far... Yeah, I do remember there was a guy I used to play with and he was definitely like that. If you played with him sober, he was terrible. He was (laughs) just very weak passive. And if you played with him drunk, like really drunk, he was a different type of terrible. Uh, he was just a really bad maniac. But if you got him between like two and three pints, now he was actually playing his A game. Uh, well, the two things were kind of balancing out and he was actually playing pretty well. I'm still not utterly convinced that alcohol is a performance enhancing drug when it comes to poker, but um, for some people it seems like it helps. Well, that's it for part one. We'll be back shortly with part two, where Dara's going to have a closer look at one of the hands I played quite recently. Now, I can't quite remember whether I played this hand after a couple of drinks or whether I was utterly shit-faced. I think we'll probably find out. Welcome back, everyone. This is part two of the Fish to Final Table Poker Podcast. I'm here with Unibet Poker Professional Dara O'Carney. And Dara, you've been looking at some of my hand histories, predominantly from the uh, two cent, four cent blinds on Grosvenor. Now, this is a level that I, I generally stick to, really, because I find that I've got my head around it. I think the initial level is, it's a bit like the Alamo. It's just people firing off all over the place and it feels a bit too much like gambling. There's not enough of a skill element to it. The two four is, I think there are people there who, who understand the rudiments and, and want to play a sound poker strategy and then you get the odd maniac which is fine we can kind of deal with that and the table above whenever I've gone onto that I've struggled because there's a lot more three betting a lot more re-raising and I'm not quite ready for that so I quite like the two four cent tables because I feel like I can be the bully I can be the one that's raising and three betting and and chipping away stealing the blinds and the way sessions go is I will build up a bit of a bankroll from stealing. Plays are, are, are perhaps overly tight, but then I will get caught out inevitably and that will bring me back down to kind of where I started. So it'd be interesting to go through a specific hand and really unpick what's going on, what decisions am I getting right and where might I be getting things drastically wrong? Yeah, um, it, it was interesting to me that you were playing uh, two cents, four cents, because even though I don't play 
much cash online these days. That is literally the only level I play. Poker is so much more difficult online these days. And in my mind, I, I would say the average two cent, four cent players these days plays better than even $5, $10 players back in the day. I think even when you get to two cents, four cents, you do see a lot of players who have, you know, maybe they've joined a few training sites or they've watched a lot of videos on YouTube and are, and are actually playing very well. You do see still see some terrible players, but most of the guys who stick around are, are going to be decent. So you're going to have to have sort of good fundamental strategy. Like back when I started, the the, the, the traditional route in poker was you started at the, at, the, at the lowest level and then you moved up as you beat that level. Nowadays, it's much more difficult to do that for a couple of reasons. The first reason is, and this is a particular issue in, in microstakes cash, the rake is very high in microstakes cash. And that means that unless you're beating the game by a fair clip, you know, you could be a winning player not taking rake into account, but the rake bites into it. So you have to pick your sites carefully. One of the reasons why I'm happy to be an ambassador for Unibet is I believe we, we do actually have the lowest rake for, for micro stakes uh, on online at the moment. On some of the bigger sites, the rake is so high, it's basically unbeatable. Um, I don't think even you know Phil Ivey would be able to move up to the ranks anymore because while he would be beating the game, he wouldn't be beating it by enough to be able to build a bankroll and, and move up that way. Just on that, Dara, I just yeah. wondered about, about rake. Is there a kind of regulation about how much an online site can put as a rake? I believe not. I think some countries maybe have some sort of regulation, but as far as I know, sites can literally rake any amount they want. And it's something which I think most players don't really pay much attention to because they maybe they assume it's standard to every site or maybe they think it's not too important because they don't notice the amounts going out. But it actually makes a huge difference to your win rate. So it's important to try and get onto a site where the game is at least beatable, that the rake isn't too high, and that has some sort of rake back or loyalty scheme so that if you're playing a lot, uh, you're also getting some of that back. Now, it's difficult because I know some countries don't allow rake back. For example, Sweden doesn't allow any sort of inducement because they see rake back as essentially a way of inducing people who are losing money to keep losing more money. So their regulators have kind of taken the approach of banning all rake back. So it's getting more and more difficult for the sites, but some sites are definitely better than others. Some sites take a view of micro stakes is where the people come in and that's where the future is. And that's very much Unibet's approach. They see micro stakes as sort of the breeding ground for people, the, the entry level, let's say. And therefore, they have the lowest uh, rake at that level so that people will come in and won't lose their money quickly and just and just leave. Certainly other sites take a different view. They just kind of see, well, look, lots of people deposit 10 or 20 bucks. They don't care whether we charge them 5%, 10%, 20%, whether we, whether it's capped or not. So let's just try and squeeze them for the most. And and, and that actually makes microstakes unbeatable on a lot of sites, no matter how well you play. All the more reason then for 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 players especially at these micro levels to to just enjoy playing the game right In, instead of thinking right i need to climb the the greasy pole up through the stakes to being a, a mid-level player i mean my aim is simply to find a game a level of a game where I, i'm enjoying it and being tested and feeling like i'm improving and maybe that's the catch we always want to feel like we're progressing it's implicit in our nature so in terms of the stakes where do you think i was fitting in in, in terms of the the level i was playing is that about right from what you could deduce from the hands yeah you're i mean you're definitely beating this level there's no doubt about that i mean i like what you said too about it just treating it as recreation i think a lot of people feel like the only reason why they would ever want to play poker is they want to be a full-time professional at it and i mean that's great for a lot of people but you know only one or two percent of people ever get there and 
and a lot of people get there and find it's not what, what they thought either. It's not all that's cracked up to be. In terms of the overall pool, it did look pretty soft. It used to be the case that there were guys who were actually making their living just from playing two cent, four cent. And that was going back like, that's going back seven or eight years. There was one guy in particular, I can't remember his name, but he was, he played sick volume. He, he, I guess he was 30 or 40 tabling for 10 to 12 hours what? a day. Oh, wow. Literally just at the micro stakes. But when you looked him up on um, on the tracking sites, you saw he was making, I think, in, in the region of 100,000 a year before rate back. And presumably because he was playing so much, I'm going to guess he was Supernova Elite as well, which was worth another, um, I think it was worth 28K back in the day. So, so, so yeah, he was clearly making his living from that. You don't see that anymore for the reasons that I went into about micro stakes these days. Just generally the standard is higher. I don't think you could successfully 30 table any anymore these days. There would be just too many spots where you have to think uh, you wouldn't be able to play at the same standard game that a mass multi-tabler plays. Well, thankfully for me, I wasn't multi-tabling whilst I was playing this hand that you've picked out. Why did you pick this one out? Yeah, this was an interesting hand to me. Uh, it was actually the very first hand I looked at. And so... This is a six max. You're playing a two cent, four cent. You are the small blind in this hand, and you have just over 100 big blinds. Four of the stacks are roughly 100 big blinds, and then uh, one guy who's mid position has 54 big blinds, and the cutoff uh, has a bit less than 102, but uh, he's not relevant to this hand anyway. So it starts with the player who's second to act, uh, UTG1, let's call him. Him in raises. This is really unusual in cash. Generally in cash, you want to open to larger amounts. You see a lot of uh, min raising in tournaments, and there are very specific reasons for that. The fact that there are anties in play is one. The fact that there is no rake is another. So this guy should be opening to three, three and a half big blinds, pretty much his entire range. But anyway, he does open to a min raise, and then the next guy folds, and the button calls. The button can call pretty wide here, obviously. He's, he's going to be in position for the entire hand against anybody. He can have a fairly wide range. Now it's around to you in the small blind, and you have queen 10 off, and you elect to call. My intuition as soon as I saw this hand was that calling with queen 10 off is a mistake, mm. and there's a couple of reasons for that. It's very tempting to call because we're getting an amazing price. There's already 6 cents, 14 cents. There's 22 cents out there, and we only have to put 6 in to get to the flop. The problem with this hand specifically is that it just doesn't play very well multi-way. This is a very common mistake I see with people like Coach. When there's more than one caller and they have this type of hand, they think, oh, well, I'm getting an amazing price now, uh, so therefore I'll call. My hand isn't terrible. I mean, Queen 10 off is not a terrible hand. But the reality is this is actually a hand which plays better against one player than against more than one player. Because... The more players there are in the pot, the more likely it is to be dominated. If we're up against one player and we hit top pair, we can be reasonably confident we'll have the best hand most of the time. If we're up against two or three other players and we hit one pair, we're not going to be as confident. We're not going to be able to put too much money into the pot after the flop. Uh, we're not going to feel happy about playing a big pot. Another issue is the, is the fact that we're at the small blind. So we're going to be out of position to every single player in the pot. The likelihood is the big blind will call after we call because he's getting such an amazing price. It's also possible he'll squeeze because there's a lot of money out there and we don't have a hand which can withstand a squeeze. So these are a couple of reasons why calling isn't good. Queen 10 pseudo will be a lot different situation because we can flop flushes, we can flop flush draws, and that just makes our hand much more playable. This sort of hand is the type of hand which the technical term for it is it realizes equity really badly post-flop. 
And what I mean by that is there's going to be a lot of flops where we have something, but one of the other players will bet or maybe two of the other players will show interest and we end up just having to give up. So we have to surrender whatever equity we have. For example, if we flop a gut shot and one guy bets and another guy raises, we're not going to be able to continue. So even though we have equity in the pot, we have a chance to win it. We may have the best hand by the river. We have to get out on the flop. So we have to surrender our equity at that point. Similarly, if we hit a pair, some of the time it's going to be second pair and we're not going to feel great about it. So we might have to give up on the flop as well or the turn. It's going to be very hard to get this hand to the river. So the best approach is pretty much just to let this type of hand go. That's really interesting. And I think a lot of my thought process on this would have been, because I've been spending quite a bit of time trying to analyse villains' ranges and trying to implement that into my game because that's not something that I did prior to the summer. And I would have seen the min raise as a sign of weakness. You know, it's a kind of middling hand, perhaps not as good even as as Q10. And then the button, as you mentioned, is probably calling with a, a wide range as well. I'm probably not thinking about the threat of the big blind raising over the top and hoping, yeah, maybe I can see a cheap flop and, and a miracle will happen. But I would have been aware of being out of position. So I'm wondering whether had UTG1 raised three and a half times, I think I probably would have folded this. I think the min raise has kept me in. Yeah, I mean... There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of good stuff in your thought process there. Like there's nothing I would really quibble with too much. Uh, we are getting an amazing price. We have a somewhat decent hand. Their ranges can be quite wide. Uh, certainly, if if he raises larger, we should definitely fold. I use solvers quite a lot myself, and I was interested to put this into a solver. The solver, interestingly, not only folds to the min raise, it would fold even if the guy had limped, which is quite stark that suggests like it really doesn't want to play this hand out of position it's going to make the second best hand a lot and that's that's an issue in multi-way pots making the second best hand is the worst thing that can happen to you in poker when you hit completely you just give up or you can maybe sometimes bluff but you know exactly where you are when you have a hand which is marginally strong and you have to keep putting chips in when it turns out to be the second best hand that's going to be costly and that's probably where people leak the most money in poker and because we're out of position, all of those problems are exacerbated. So as I said, I, I put this into the solver. Uh, the solver I used in this case it was it's called Poker Snowy. And one of the good things about Snowy is it, it, it will give you what everybody's ranges should be at different points in the hand. So I was primarily obviously interested in your range, uh, what, what you should do. Now with Queen 10 off, it, it, it does just fold. But basically the way it plays its range is that if it has a hand it wants to play, it usually just raises. And so it pots it. And think back to what you said. You said, I think the guy doesn't have a very good hand, the, guy, the opener, because he's just min-raised. I also think the button doesn't have a good raise. And I agree with both those points. That being true, it is better to raise most of your hands because they have weak hands. And if you can get them to fold preflop, that's great. If you can get them to put money in into the pot with a worse hand, that's also good. And you're also going to have the betting lead. So having the betting lead... Uh, is significant because if one or two of them call and you both miss the flop, but you throw out a C bet, if they've missed, they'll probably just give up and you win the pot that way. So you give yourself lots of ways to win. Now, you don't want to go crazy with this. You don't want to start raising everything because then your range is just too wide. But it is a better way to play your overall range in this spot. And in terms of what the solver raises, it basically, if it has a suited ace here, it raises. And you see this a lot. The reason why suited aces are good hands in these spots, even the weak suited aces, are that they block the other guys having really strong hands like aces 
or is keen, they also flop equity a lot. Like even if you don't hit a pair, very occasionally hit a flush, you will hit a flush draw, I think it's 10% of the time, and you will actually hit a backdoor flush draw nearly always. So you have the type of hand which plays very well post-flop. Even if you get called and miss, uh, on a lot of flops you can see better. <laughs> and when we get on to post-flop, we talk about post-flop strategy. But the type of hands you want to see that when you've missed are hands which can turn into something really strong by the river. So even having a backdoor flush draw, and particularly with the suited ace, the not backdoor flush draw, that's really good and important because if you try to see better and called with your backdoor flush draw, it means if you hit your flush draw on the turn, you can bet again. Sometimes the guy will fold and that's great. You've won with ace high. Sometimes the guy will call. That's not a disaster because you will hit your flush sometimes on the river and be able to make a really big value bet. So that's a very profitable situation for you. So the way you play pre-flop should be to set your ranges up in such a way that you have those types of hands. That'll make post-flop easier. If you have a lot of junky hands like queen 10 that don't flop very much, it's much more difficult. So that's why we see the solver wanting to raise with all of the suited aces. The other hands it wants to raise are all the pairs that are stronger than tens. And again, that's fairly straightforward. When we have tens plus, we generally have the best hand. If they fold, great, we take it down pre-flop. But if they call, it's fine. If, if we have aces, we'll usually have an overpair. If we have kings to tens, we'll often have an overpair. We can also hit a set, etc. So those hands kind of make sense to raise as well. And the only other hand then that it raises um, is ace-king off. And again, same reason. It's interesting to look at the hands that it folds. Ace-jack off is a fold in this spot. And I think that would surprise most people. Most people would think, well, ace-jack's a very strong hand. We have two guys who have fairly wide ranges. We're going to have the best hand a lot. Poker isn't about having the best hand. Poker is about setting up profitable situations. And when you have a hand like ace-jack off, you're going to have the problem that even when you make the best hand, which would be a top pair, top kicker type hand, if you bet and the other player starts showing aggression, you're not going to feel great about your hand. It, it just doesn't make that sort of nutted hand. It's very important to structure your ranges so that you have hands which you can make nutted hands. And that's why a hand like ace-6 suited is much better in this situation than a hand like ace-jack off. With both hands, whether you have ace-6 suited or ace-jack off, if you hit top pair and bet, you are pretty much rooting for the fold. And if they fold, it doesn't matter whether you had a6 or a jack. Um, you, you've, you've got the same result. Similarly, if they raise, you don't really have a strong enough hand either way to stack off. So again, there's very little difference between ace jack off and a6 suited in, in the sense of when they make a single pair. But the big difference is a6 suited can make much stronger draws. And that's why you, you see the solver advocating just folding ace jack off, but continuing with, with all the suited aces. In terms of what it calls, it calls all the pairs that are below 10s. Reason for that is if you have a hand like 9s or 8s, yes, it's a strong hand. Yes, it would be the best hand a lot. But it doesn't make a good raise for two reasons. The first reason is if you raise and get re-raised, your hand isn't really strong enough to stack off. You're going to have to just surrender. And that really sucks because you could have just called and tried to hit a set which would be a very profitable situation for you. The second reason is that even if you do raise and they just call, you are not going to like any flop that doesn't make you a set. Uh, you're going to be looking at overcards a lot, and then you're in a very difficult situation. You, you're out of position with maybe second or third pair, and that's just not a good profitable situation post-flop. So the best way to play a pair for 
nines or less is to just call and try and hit a set. And that's going to be very popular, particularly because the opening size is so small. So the other, the only other hands that it calls are the super connectors. So it'll call king jack suited, king ten suited, queen jack suited, queen ten suited, jack ten suited, and then all the single suited connectors uh, down as far as five four suited. And the reason for that is those hands are far less likely to be dominated to the smaller suited connectors when they when they do hit a pair, but they can also flop much more than a pair. They can flop open enders. They can flop gut shots, they can flop flush draws, they can flop back row flush draws, etc. If you just called all your small pairs here, or your small and medium pairs, you'd be incredibly transparent. And on a very draw-heavy board, you'd also be capped. Like if the board came 9, 8, 7, yes, you could have a set of 9s, 8s, and 7s, but you can't have any two pairs and you can't have any straights. But by throwing hands like Jack-10 suited and 6-5 suited into your, into your calling range, that means when that flop comes down, you could have made a straight. Uh, similarly, if there's a flush or a flush draw on board, you could have that. So in terms of pre-flop, you should always be thinking in these terms, not just about what my hand is right now and how good it is in comparison to uh, the people I'm up against, but also just how well will it play post-flop and will it allow me to have different types of hands on different flops and very strong hands on some flops so that that makes me more difficult to play against. When I when I played back in the day, I was an old-fashioned knit at the start, which meant that, for example, when I raised under the gun, I only had high cards or a pair above eights. And that meant a lot of players exploited me in the early days by just calling. And then if the board came three red cards, they knew I couldn't have a set. They knew the strongest hand I could have was an overbear and they could attack. You have to construct your range so that that is impossible, that people can't just attack on a certain type of board. And if we think about the two ranges that we're got, that the solver advocates here, the raising range has all the suited aces in them. So any board that has a flush or a flush draw, it can have the nut flush or the nut flush draw. And that protects us when we have weaker hands as well. It means opponents can't just arrow us off with mindless aggression. Our calling range is similarly protected because we, we, we throw in all of these suited connector type hands, 5-4 suited, 6-5 suited, 7-6 suited, etc., in addition to the pairs that we want to call just because we don't want to play too big a part. I've been thinking about that quite a lot and thinking about it in terms of I also need to cover the other end of the board. So if someone's raising and I'm I'm calling it up, nine times out of ten, those guys are going to have aces, kings, x. It feels like kind of undercutting them. If I'm going to go in sneakily and cover a different part of the board, then I might catch them out at this level. And it's just something that I've been trying to do of late. Yeah, the concept you're referring to there is, is called board coverage. And it, and it is a really important concept because you never want to be in a situation where a board comes down and you just can't have a very, very strong hand. One of the big things the solvers have taught us is the importance of opening suited aces just in terms of board coverage so that we can have very strong hands. But then also in specific situations where we have a very tight range, be that an opening range under the gun or a three batting range in a different seat, we need to have a hand like six five suited in there sometimes for board coverage reasons. The player in the big blind in this hand, he's seeing in front of him a number of relatively weak moves. Surely he's rubbing his hands together and and preparing for a big raise. Is is that what he does? Yeah, I mean this if he's up against players who only have weak ranges in the spot, then he can pretty much raise really, really wide because the technical term is that people have capped their ranges in the sense that if they had a strong hand, they would have done something different. And you see this at these stake levels sometimes, two cents, four cents, where when people open for a min raise, it's always weak. 
if they actually had a stronger hand like aces or ace king they'd open for a larger size um, because they want to in inverted commas protect or charge you to draw but when they have a hand like 10-9 suited that they feel like playing they'll just throw in a min raise that's obviously a really bad strategy because as soon as somebody picks up on that when they see you open for the smaller size they can just pounce with a large raise and you either have to call with a very weak hand or you have to fold with three players a min raise and then two callers what what kind of a raise might work there yeah i mean typically you want to go pretty big if you're raising you're going pot so it's eight cents eight cents so you you go to 40 cents basically and that forces all the crap out. Now, this is a situation which is more difficult to look at in solvers because the solvers will assume everybody is playing sensibly. So they will, they, will, they, they will think the other guys are doing what we talked about earlier, protecting their ranges. They're not just doing this with a certain type of hand. So it's interesting to look to see what the what the solver does in this spot when it's the big blind. The solver is doing a lot of raising and it, and it always uses that size of pot that I described. It's raising super wide. It'll raise down to ace-10 suited, king-10 suited, queen-10 suited. It'll raise every pair sevens or better and then all of the suited connectors it will raise as well. And the suited connectors are interesting because you would think, well, why doesn't it just call with a hand like 7-6 suited or 6-5 suited that, li- that likes to see a flop? But the problem with those hands is once you go four away, a hand like six five suited actually goes down in value quite a lot. Because when it makes a flush, it'll run into a higher flush a significant amount of the time. One of the worst situations in poker is getting it in with a flush draw against a better flush draw. You're, you're almost dead at that point. Similarly, the, the pair outs just aren't really useful. When you make a, a single pair with a hand like 6-5 suited four-way, it's kind of worthless. You're not going to um, have the best hand enough at the time. So it makes sense to sort of narrow the field and take the action with those types of hands. And what does Big Blind actually do in the hand? Then? So Big Blind calls as well. At this stake level, I think you're going to see a lot of that. Now, the solvers won't call too much here. They'll raise a lot. They'll call some hands. I mean, they'll call their smaller pairs. But, you know, like the solver will, will fold the hand like King-10 or Queen-10 in this spot, which I don't think most humans will do. Uh, I think a human sitting in the Big Blind with King-10 will go, oh, well, it's only four more cents to call, so I call. So I think... Real-life humans will have much wider ranges in this spot than, than they should. So that's what happens in this case. The, the big blind decides to just come along. So that's pre-flop. Um, if you were in my seat there, would you have thrown it away? <laughs> that's a really good question. I mean, when you're up against really weak opposition, it's very tempting to play more hands. And I think the answer to your question is if this was a live cash game, if I'm at a festival and I'm playing live... I'm probably going to continue with this hand because I don't. it's boring to fold and I'm only one tabling. <laughs> but if I'm 10 tabling online, I'll just look at this hand and I'll know that it's not in my calling range. So I'll just fold and, and, and look at another table. But having said that, I mean, I said calling preflop is a mistake. One of the good things about the solvers is that you can see not just if something is a theoretical mistake, but also how much it loses long term. So if we look at the call with queen 10 off suit uh, this loses us one third of a big blind in the long run so that's just over one cent that's not necessarily a big deal particularly when we're up against weaker players sometimes you can justify making losing in inverted commas calls pre-flop against weak players because you expect them to make even bigger mistakes post-flop and that might be the case now to be honest i still don't think this is a call even against very weak opposition because we have all the problems of being out of position what I would say is don't think in terms of binary terms of mistake or not mistake. Also think about how big a mistake is. 
Sounds like very good advice, Dara. Well, that's it for part two. We'll be back very shortly with some post-flop action. Like what you've heard so far? Well, the best way to support the pod is simply by clicking the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Alternatively, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter where we'll be happy to talk all things poker with you. Okay, let's find out how I got on post-flop. Welcome back. This is part three of the Fish to Final Table poker podcast. So we're four way to the flop and I'm in the small blind. So I'll be first to act and I have queen 10 off and pot must be getting, must be relatively healthy now, is it? 32 cents in the pot now, yeah. And I'm imagining I, I will check there. There's no it would take a brave man to, to raise in this spot, wouldn't it? Uh, well, this is interesting because I would actually bet here. So the flop is eight of spades, nine of hearts, four of hearts. So there are two hearts there and there's the eight of spades, which means jack 10 is open-ended, 10, seven is open-ended, seven, six is open-ended. Any two hearts make a flush draw. In that scenario, if I have a very strong hand, two pair or a set, I absolutely want to bet here because I don't want to risk it checking true and my hand getting seriously devalued on the turn. So in a situation where you want to bet your really strong hands, you want to have some other hands that bet as well. So that again, you're not just, you become very easy to play against if you always have a set when you bet. So when you're thinking in terms of the other hands that you want to have, they want to have something so that if they get called, they can improve on the turn. But they also want to really like it if everybody just folds. If we bet in this spot and everybody folds, that's an amazing result for us because we just won the pot with queen high. If we bet and somebody calls, that's not a disaster for us because we can hit a jack on the turn, which will make us the nuts. We can hit a six or a seven, which will give us a double gutter. Well, actually open-ended with a seven, double gutter with the six. We can hit a heart, which we pick up a flush draw. Or we can hit a ten or a queen, which gives us a top pair, which which would be ahead of a lot of the hands that call us on the flop. So getting called in this scenario is not a disaster either. If somebody throws in a big raise, also not a disaster, because, okay, we have a pretty weak hand, we can just throw it away. Whereas if we bet a stronger hand, like, say, jack ten, which is open-ended and get raised, it's a lot dicier now. We really don't want to fold, but we don't want to put in a lot of money either. So when we have a hand like ace nine, ace eight, jack 10, or a flush draw, those hands are strong enough to check call, but we don't want to bet and have to face a big raise. So with those types of hands, we're going to check. And if and again, if everybody checks behind, like we don't really mind if everybody checks behind when we hit jack 10, because we get to see the turn for free. It's not a disaster for us if we have ace nine and everybody checks because we find out we almost certainly have the best hand. And if a blank comes off on the turn, we can start betting. It's also not a disaster for us if it goes bet, raise, shove because we can just fold that hand. That moves hands like the hand we have, queen 10 with a heart, into the sort of like, well, it kind of makes sense to bet because if they all fold, great. If they call, okay, fine. We have some turn cards we can hit. And if they raise, okay, well, we don't like having to fold, but we found out that somebody has a very strong hand, so we just fold our hand, which is essentially just a gut shot. So I think it actually makes a lot of sense to bet in this in this situation. Is that also an example of the betting lead then as well? Are we kind of taking control there if, if we're betting? Yeah, like multi-way plays a lot different from heads up. If this was heads up uh, and we we're out of position, I don't think we would ever lead here because we would expect the other guy to see bet a lot. But because it's multi-way, people are going to be more careful about c-betting anyway. So it's going to check behind a lot. 
Similarly, people are going to need stronger hands to continue, so they're going to fold more. Let's say the big blind has pocket sixes. When you bet, he's not going to like it because he's got two other players behind him who could have very strong hands. He's also going to know that even if you might be at it a lot of the time, you're doing this with this type of hand, which has a lot of improvement. Queen 10 actually has pretty good equity against sixes in this spot. We can hit a jack, we can hit a 10, we can hit a queen, we can hit some backdoors, we can hit heart, heart, or we can hit a straight the other way. So sixes is probably just going to have to fold to this bet. So we, we actually get to fold out a lot of stronger hands. People are going to need a fairly strong hand to continue. Some of those hands we're actually blocking. Like jack 10 would be strong enough to continue here, uh, but we block that with our queen 10. A flush draw would be strong enough to continue here, but we have the queen of hearts, so that blocks a lot of flush draws. It blocks, say, it's queen of hearts, king, queen of hearts, queen, jack of hearts, queen, ten of hearts, etc. So the reason why this is a good hand to select is essentially threefold. We have a hand which has very little showdown, isn't going to be the best hand. We have a hand that blocks some of the hands which continue, and uh, we have a hand which can improve on a later street if we get called. It doesn't play great as a check call. If we check and somebody bets, I mean, we have equity, but the hand doesn't really play well as a check call. So anytime you have a hand that has something going for it, but doesn't play great as a check call, it makes perfect sense to turn that into one of your leads. So why doesn't it play well as a check call then? Because we're, we're often dominated by ace-queen, king-queen. Well, th- think about the hands that will bet when we check. Again, anybody betting is betting into three other people. So they're probably not just going to bet with nothing. And the only turn card that we're going to love is a jack. And actually, not even the jack of hearts. So jack of clubs, jack of spades, or jack of diamonds. There are only three amazing cards for us that can come on the turn. The other cards are kind of compromised if you think about them. Like, if somebody bets and we call, if a queen rolls off, we don't just have to worry about them having a better queen or having a hand that's already better than than a queen on the flop, like two pair or a set. We also have to worry about jack 10. Jack 10 just got there, which is a hand they might be betting. So queen is what we uh, used to call a dirty out. It's a card that even if we hit, we can't be sure we're good. 10 is similar. The 10 will make a straight for 6-7. It'll make better two pair for 10-9 suited, 10-8 suited, is 10. It, it loses to a lot of hands. So all of those outs are kind of compromised and dirty. Even if we hit a heart to pick up a flush draw, if the guy bets big, we're going to have to fold because we won't have enough flush draw and we won't have the price with only one card to come. So those are kind of the reasons why it doesn't play great as a check call. It's not just the fact that we don't have great equity right now, but it's also the fact that we won't be able to stand up to further heat on the turn. Okay, so pre-flop, we probably should have folded as per the solver. What does the solver say about this situation? The solver is going to be less useful to us in this spot than pre-flop, because for a start, we've done something which the solver wouldn't do. But it can still kind of take the new situation and decide what it would do in that spot. And it's actually quite interesting. The solver splits between checking and betting in this spot, but it checks only 17% of the time and it bets 83% of the time. And that's playing against people it thinks are playing perfectly. Against players who are not playing perfectly, I think we should just go ahead and bet 100% of the time, which again is what my intuition would have been when I saw this hand. Because they'll fold too much, they'll play badly on later streets. All of those things make the bet even more profitable than if we were playing against a solver. What happens then? Did I check? Yeah, so you, you check... Big blind checks. The original opener throws out a tiny one big blind bet, which makes zero sense with anything. Like if he has a strong hand, like a set, he should bet large, obviously, because of all the draws that are there. I mean, he doesn't want to bet and let Jack-10 get the price to draw, let 
two hearts, you've got the price to draw. The small bet makes zero sense. It won't fold out anything, but that's what happens. The button is getting nine to one on the call. So if he thinks he even has an 11% chance of winning the hand, he has to continue. That basically means gut shots, backdoor flush draws, over cards type of hands. There's almost nothing he can fold here. Even if he has a hand like ace nine, it doesn't make sense to just call. He's better off raising to deny equity to all the draws, even to overguards. Everything has equity against ace nine, basically. So he has kind of just let the cat out of the bag, too, that he has a weak hand, but it's not that weak that it can't call four cents. Yeah, so now we're in a situation where both players have done something really weird, and it's back on us. Now we're getting an even more amazing price. We're now getting 10 to 1. So we really can't fold anything. If we think our chances of winning the pot are 10%. Now, we've, we already know that there's three cards which make us the nuts. Jack of spades, jack of clubs, jack of diamonds. So that's almost 10% straight away. We can think about raising now. Now, in reality, the solver doesn't raise. That's because calling is just so attractive in this spot because of the price we're getting. Because we're getting 10 to 1, calling is absolutely printing money. Personally, I would be tempted to stick out a raise here because I do think the other two players have not shown strength. I think if they had legit hands, they would have bet bigger or raised in the case of the button. The only slight concern to that line of thinking is the big blinds. I think the big blind would check a strong hand in this spot a lot of the time to set up a check raise because he would expect the original opener to see bet a lot. The button can call, we can call, and he can be in this scenario now where he can stick in a big raise and win that way. So... That's one slight concern, but I think my, I certainly like the call. The call is, is clearly correct and clearly profitable. I would also consider raising, depending on my read of the other players. If I was convinced they always have weak hands, I think I would just go ahead and raise and try and win the hand now. Is there an argument then for, for calling, because that will, we, we've established that they've probably got, still got quite weak hands. Um, is there an argument then for keeping them in? Yeah, but th- this is not a situation though really where we want to keep in a weak hand, because we're behind all their weak hands right now. Like, even if they have ace high or any pair, we're behind right now. So we would like them to just fold their better hand right now, and we don't have to hit to win. So that's an argument for raising. The other argument for raising is that because they have a weak hand, if we do hit our miracle jack, for example, they won't put too much more money into the pot anyway, because they have a weak hand. We would rather than have a set if we hit our jack than have ace high, because we can get a lot of money from a set but we can't get a lot of money from ace high if we hit our jack. So I think if we had a made hand at this point, something like 9-8, you could make a stronger case for just calling to keep their weaker hands in. I think we'd still probably would want to raise because of all the draws that are there, but I think the case would be stronger. When we have this type of hand, I, I think we just want them to fold when we raise, but we do at least have the backup of hitting a very strong hand when they call. And again, if we raise and they call and then we hit our jack, that's a much better situation for us than calling and then hitting our jack. The pot's already bigger. They've already expressed an interest in continuing. So they're more likely to pay us off when we've raised than when we just call. So I presume I call then? You do call, as it happens, which I'm obviously fine with. And the big blind folds. And the nine of diamonds rolls off on the turn. So the board is now eight of spades, nine of hearts, four of hearts, nine of diamonds. So the board has paired so what, what's your thinking when this card rolls off? I don't know. I would have read the original Razor as still being weak, the Min-Raise pre-flop, and then this weird small raise. I would put them on perhaps over cards, Ace-10. So part of me would think, well, there's perhaps not a lot of nines in their range. Maybe I could 
represent a nine. But Tricky being out of position and being first to act, I would definitely just be checking and responding to whatever other people do with a view to perhaps, if I was feeling gutsy, check raising to represent the nine or just getting out of it. Yeah, there's a lot of good thinking there and, and interesting stuff. One thing I would say is that I think it's difficult for us to represent a nine at this point because I don't think we would necessarily play a nine this way on the flop. I think we would be very heavily incentivized to either bet a nine so that it doesn't check true if we have, say, ace nine or to check raise because of all the draws that are there when we face a small bet. We would recognize our hand is probably the best now, but it's very vulnerable. I think this is a bad card for us in a couple of ways. The first way is that I think we have less nines than the two opponents have. We certainly have less super strong hands. Like it's possible they're playing eights or fours trappily this way as well. The other reason I think why this is a bad card for us is that on the flop, one of the reasons why I advocate betting on the flop is that our hand can improve to a very strong hand. It can hit the nuts if it hits a jack, a non-heart jack. It can hit a backdoor flush draw. It can hit a card which makes it either a double gutter or open-ended. So there's a lot of good turn cards. Now, we got none of those turn cards, and there is only one more card to come. And the fact that the board is paired has actually devalued even our three jacks. We could now hit one of those jacks on the river and still not have the best hand. Lost the nut advantage. Yeah, so our hand has just shriveled up in value now. I think we missed our chance on the flop to either bet or check raise and now we just have to kind of accept that really all we're hoping is they both check and we get a chance to see a free river and maybe we improve then but we're no longer have a hand that can really improve to a super strong hand so yeah we're we're absolutely i think forced to check here now and just see what happens but we're recognizing the fact we don't have a very strong hand anymore and with only one card to come we don't have as much chance to improve as we had on the flop bearing their previous actions in mind that might that alter the thinking all right we might be less likely to have a nine but there's a strong potential these guys have completely missed this board as well isn't there so showing a bit of aggression at this point is that a fishy play i think it's just going to look weird because our actions on the flop kind of say of a pretty weak hand i just want to see the turn counterflow they call this where somebody is acting very uh passively and then they suddenly get aggressive it's a very strange line and it usually is fishy that's what it is isn't it it's a story it's got to make sense it's a narrative that we're telling yeah. through the streets and if it doesn't add up it's not going to make sense it's going to feel weird isn't it that's completely right like every hand is exactly that a story and if the story changes on every street it doesn't make sense so you have to try and figure out well, what street are they lying on and you see that too sometimes you know people will play a hand which suggests they have a made hand but then the draw gets there on the turn and they bet again and then another draw gets there on the river which they would never have bet twice on previous streets but they still bet again and it's like the story makes absolutely no sense so when the story makes no sense you're generally heavily weighted towards bluffs and if you can think about the type of hands that they might do this as a bluff then you, you can make some starking calls great so i presume i i check you do check yeah and and interestingly our friend goes for another one big blind bet which is really bizarre again like it literally achieves nothing at the stakes that i play you don't really see this play very much but at lower stakes you see it a lot and i sometimes get asked by my students like how do i play against a one big blind bet and the answer is generally do exactly what you would do against a check so don't fold like when we get to the turn at this point you have something so you can't fold getting 11 to 1 but if you have a hand which you would want to raise against a check then go ahead and raise it against this bet too this essentially is a check i mean he's thrown out one big blind 
But that's not enough to make anything fold. And it's not enough to build a pot when he has a super strong hand. So essentially, functionally, it's the same as a check. The button raises now, which is interesting. And I think this is potentially is a good play from the button. He can recognize that you almost certainly haven't improved on the nine. This small bet is just bullshit. And it's actually a very good spot for him to throw in a raise now. I think this would have been a good spot for you had the button not taken it for you to do exactly what he did, which is to stick in a big raise. Because while it's possible one of them has a nine, it's kind of unlikely. This bet looks exactly like the guy is trying to see the river pretty cheap. Mm. And actually, that's what ends up happening. He just folds to the raise. And I feel like he might be folding 100% of the time here. Yeah, and we fold as well. We fold, yeah. I mean, the, the other the other guy has taken our play, basically. If if he had called as well, I would have done exactly what he did, raised to 32 and get the other two guys to fold. And even if one of them calls, well, we might hit the river. But yeah, once the other guy shows some aggression, like he can have a nine. That's the issue we have. Mm. But I think overall, the hand kind of, the way I would describe it is a series of small mistakes. Yeah. I think the decision to call pre-flop was a small mistake. Yeah. I think the decision not to bet on the flop was a small mistake. Actually, th that's probably it. Yeah, the turn play is fine. But yeah, two small mistakes. Now, the issue with that is that you can end up leaking away a lot of money mm. to, to, to making these small mistakes, particularly if these are situations which arise a lot. Like, yeah, you probably gave up a few cents in it on the hand in total. And if you're going to do that, let's say it cost you five cents. If you're going to do that 20 times in a session, that's one euro that you've lost, essentially, these types of spots. So, so finding these types of leaks and plugging them is very important. But even more important than that is thinking about in terms of range construction and why you're doing certain things. And that allows you then to play in a coherent, sort of holistic way mm. through all the streets. I, I'm going to take that with me. What the solver was saying, what to play, and just to get rid of all those offsuited. It was everything pretty much other than ace-king. Yeah. Get rid of it all, but build in those suited connectors, build in that board coverage in order to, to be balanced. Let's call them speculative hands, hands which are unlikely to be the best hand unless they improve. And there's two large categories of speculative hands, small pairs and pseudo connectors. Small pairs don't care as much about position as, as pseudo connectors because it's no set, no bet. On the other hand, it's it's much harder to play pseudo connectors type hands out of position, which is why out of position you will see the solvers generally will favor in particular the suited aces. Because the suited aces will, when they flop a draw, are generally drawing to the nuts. Whereas a hand like 5-4 suited isn't and prefers to be in position. So yeah, position is a huge thing. Both those hand types of hands, 5-4 suited and pocket 2s, are still better than queen 10 off in the small blind. Mostly because they can hit really nutty type hands or very strong, in the case of 5-4 suited, very strong draws. Whereas queen 10 just kind of flops an, an awkward amount of equity a lot at the time. Enough equity that you would like to get to see the river but not enough equity that you're willing to put a lot of money into the pot to see the river. So you end up just having to fold. So in this spot, more 5-4 suited, less queen 10 off. That's fascinating. And definitely something that is against the grain. My instinct would not go there. So these, these are things that I'm purposefully going to need to integrate and, and think about. So Dara, thanks thanks so much for your insights. And just before you go, I'm thinking, I've been playing cash, I'm now thinking of venturing, broadening my poker playing horizons and jumping on the tournament tables. Any bits of advice, games to select or, or strategy, what, what should I be looking at? 
In terms of games to select, I would stick pretty much to the lower levels. Everything $10 and lower on pretty much every site is very soft tournaments. Once you go above $10, you start to see more pros and regs and people who are journey experts. Even even recreationists who play those levels tend to kind of know what they're doing. So I would say, if you think of these in terms of divisions, $10 and lower is League 2 in football. $10 to 55 is League 1. And then above 100 or so is the premiership. Above 100 is really the level that people should stay away from unless they're expert. It's different on Sundays, obviously, because more recreations play and people will play stuff like the Sunday Million or Supernova on Unibet. But for the most part, I would say definitely stick below $10 to start with. You'll see all sorts of really weird, wacky play and it can be frustrating at times to see the way people are playing, but it's definitely the most profitable level to play. In terms of the strategy, I would say, first of all, recognize that it's quite different from cash. And it's a learning curve, obviously, but the general principles are you have to play more hands uh, because there are antis in play and there's no rake. And you have to generally use smaller sizes than in cash both pre-flop and post-flop. The min-raise or slightly over the min-raise is fairly standard in tournaments. Fairly small c-bet sizes. Typically, the c-bet in tournaments tends to be about a third pot. So smaller sizings in general. As you get into tournaments and you get more experienced, the, the most important thing to get good at is the later stages because that's where most of the money is and just get very comfortable with your ranges. Playing shorter stacks is not something that generally... Um, we're used to as, as a cash game Absolutely player I'm point. just not used to playing with with shorter yeah. stacks and um, often I have a certain way of playing either tight or loose and it might fluctuate a little bit on the cash tables at those stakes but not massively I generally kind of stick to the same kind of thing that I've worked out works quite well whereas when I interviewed Lee Reynolds who won the Goliath tournament last year he spoke about how the fluctuation between playing really tight and then loosening up he could sense that he got a good feel of when to do that and so having that grasp maybe intuitively or kind of however we develop that skill it seems to be really important yeah you're right I mean small stack is a huge it's completely different and it plays so differently and it's the one area which cash game players really struggle with every tournament is decided to 20 bigs or less uh, even the world series main event which is the best structured tournament in the world generally when the guys get heads up or when they get to the final table the shorter stack has 20 big blinds or less and it's a 20 big blind game so therefore knowing your ranges in these spots is super important I mean, I coach some really, really good cash players, but they always struggle in these spots because, as you said, you're just not used to having 20 big blinds and you don't know, like, am I supposed to limp here? Is this hand strong enough to call? Even post-flop is different because post-flop plays very differently 20 bigs deep versus 100 big blinds deep. Equity denial and equity realization become much more important. Because I've been a tournament player, essentially, for most of my life, I think that is my strength, 20 big blinds or less. My first year I was in Vegas at the World Series, my brother came with me. As I said, my brother taught me how to play initially. And he noticed after a while that some players who were considered to be really, really good players, like Neil Channing, for example, would come up and they'd ask me about hands. And he said to me, it's incredible that you're only playing a year, and yet you have these guys coming up and asking you about hands. And I said, yeah, but like they never have more than 20 big blinds in the hand. That's the reason they're asking me. These are very good cash game players who are used to play deep stack play, but they have they don't know what to do with ace-queen when they have 20 big blinds under the gun. Um, and this is that, that's sort of my area of specialization. And that is super important. And it's also an area which has changed quite a bit because, again, before the solvers, people used to just say, oh, when you get down to 10 big blinds, just shove or fold. Don't raise folds. That, that was another big thing. 
now with the solvers, there's a lot more nuance and people are finding very, very small edges. They're finding spots where they can limp profitably. They're finding spots where they can actually raise folds fairly shallow. But it is a huge area in itself. And it's the kind of thing you'll only really get good at to study. And it's not that you can study for every single spot and memorize by rote what you're supposed to do. But the more spots you look at, the more it sort of all goes into the memory bank. And when you find yourself in similar spots at the table, you just kind of know what to do. It feels like intuition at that stage. And maybe it is intuition. Maybe intuition is just sort of very well-refined experience. And if that's the case, yeah, then it is intuition. You just kind of see what the right play is. You know, okay, I have ace-jack here. That's not quite strong enough. I have ace-queen. This is strong enough. I have to get it in, etc. You recognize, oh, this is a good spot. Weak maniac opened. And another guy who's who would always three benefits a strong hand flats and I only have 20 big blinds but I have ace two suited so this is a really good spot for me to shove all of those things just sort of become second nature because you've done you've done the work away from the table I, I love that you you learn poker from your brother and uh, and now have surpassed him is is that right if you were to have a Daniel Negreanu Doug Polk heads up battle between you and your brother who would come out on top Oh, I would definitely come out on top. He doesn't even play anymore. I mean, it's weird. We had, we had this weird sibling relationship from childhood where we would both pick up a game and we'd play it. And we would play it really, really intensively until we figured out who was better. And then once we knew who had won the game, the other person would just stop. So, for example, he became a better chess player than I. And that's why I don't play chess really anymore. But I became a better poker player than him. So he doesn't play poker anymore. We've always had that weird sibling rivalry. I can identify with that. My brother's really good at cricket. I've never played the game, never wanted to play it, you yeah. know, it's just purely to avoid competing directly with, with him. And I imagine that would still go on now because those kind of family dynamics continue well into your into your 40s and 50s. So um, lovely. Dara, thanks so much for coming on. It's been great to hear your thoughts and I'd love to get you back, perhaps see what a Solvo and yourself thinks to some of my tournament play because... That's definitely where I'm going to next because the cash games, I feel, have given me a good solid foundation and um, I'm excited now to see what what tournaments are all about. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking forward to it too. It's, it's, it's always exciting to me working with players who are kind of at the earlier stages of their career, let's say, because that's the time that's the most fun. You're learning the most um, and you can get kind of jaded and withered when you get to my stage 13 years in. So it's great to see people at the other end of the spectrum still really excited about the game. I mean, I am still very excited by the game, but enthusiasm is um, is infectious and it's always great to see somebody trying to learn something new. Thank you so much. Well, uh, it's been lovely chatting and uh, I hope to see you uh, very soon on the pod. Absolutely, yeah. I'd be thrilled to come back and uh, see how you're getting on with the tournaments. Well, that's it for another episode. But if you'd like to hear more from Dara, then be sure to check out the Chip Race podcast if you haven't already. I'll also put links to Dara's strategy books on the show notes, which will be on the Facebook page. And I'll be back soon with a new episode. Until then, good luck playing poker. The Fish to Final Table Poker Podcast is an AOA TV production. Hosted and produced by Nick Oakley with music by D6 Bass and online artwork courtesy of Nice Things by Bella. <laughs>